This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, the show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Andre Henry. Andre is an author, a musician, and an activist. And he most recently published his first book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And it is a very powerful, very effective book that explores many elements of his the last six years of his increasing activity in speaking up for racial justice. It is a very, very moving and effective book that blends memoir as well as advice for how to advocate for long-term change both from the perspective of an individual activist as well as for society at large. It's a very challenging book that addresses many of the things that are inherent to white evangelicalism and very challenging for those of us who are white to come to terms and acknowledge the realities of white evangelicalism as well as a validation of those who are black or other uh, indigenous or people of color who have lived in white evangelical spaces. And the book is not limited to that, and neither is our conversation, but it is a very, very powerful book, and I hope that you will go out and pick it up. You can find a link to purchase the book on Amazon or bookshop.org, and those are affiliate links that you can find in the show notes. If you want to support this show, you can do so directly via the Post Evangelical Post, this show is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post, which can be found, again, at postevangelicalpost.com. You can subscribe for free, or there are paid tiers at 4 6 or $8 a month. Purchasing a paid subscription will get you exclusive posts, as well as ad-free podcast feeds and a few other benefits that you can read over at, once again, postevangelicalpost.com. This episode was edited by Elizabeth Nordenholt of Podcat Audio. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is the musician, activist, and author Andre Henry, who recent pu- recently published the book All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. Andre, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I've uh, followed you online and been an admirer of your work for years and really wanted to con- congratulate you at the top for this book. It's um, both like, intensely personal and political, and you reject this sort of privileged stance that separate those fears. And yeah. it's, yeah. And it's a book about your experience as well as the black experience that doesn't cater to white feelings. And I know that the starting point of this show is primarily talking about experiences in white evangelicalism and leaving it and that's only part of your story but i just want to you know thank you for writing it and for talking with me about it for a little while 
Yeah, my pleasure. I usually start the show by asking people where they grew up, and that's actually where your book starts, too. You grew grew up in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is home to Confederate Mount Rushmore, as you said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in Indiana, and while there was a lot of, at the time, I think we're similar in age, there was a lot of colorblind racism and other elements of white supremacy. Lost Cod's ideology or religion wasn't as overt there. And I only learned about Stone Mountain and what's present at Stone Mountain in the last couple of years. So oh. what was it like growing growing up in Stone Mountain? And if you could talk a little bit about that. For sure. So growing up in Stone Mountain, as I describe in the book, was kind of an experience of racial gaslighting. Because the legacy of the Confederacy is very strong in Stone Mountain. You know, as you mentioned, the largest Confederate monument in the world is in that city. It is on the rock that we call Stone Mountain. It's a giant carving of Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, on horseback. It is that rock is also the site where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. The modern Ku Klux Klan was uh, resurrected there. And the idea for that monument was actually the idea of clan sympathizers. But when I was growing up, we would go to Stone Mountain Park and watch the laser show where they make those generals move again. And there was no mention of any of that history there in Stone Mountain Park. In fact, I didn't find out that the, <laughs> I didn't find out a lot about the carving of that uh, monument until I was actually writing the book, until I was doing the research for the book. And I was looking up information about the carving because I wanted to talk about that, that scene. And I found out, you know, you know, that the original design for that uh, or the original idea for that carving was actually to just be a depiction of General Lee carved into the side of the mountain, leading a procession of Klansmen. So I talk about that as gaslighting because gaslighting is this uh, abuse tactic that seeks to get the target to doubt their perception of reality. And best case scenario for the gaslighter is that the target accepts the gaslighters vision version of reality. And so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in in Stone Mountain. I think it's I think it was prevalent throughout the South where after the Civil War, many Confederates immediately got to the task of reframing the reasons why the Civil War was fought, which sociologist Brian Martin marks as one of the common tactics of oppressors that they reframe the oppression. So this happened right after the Civil War and passed down all the way to the present day to me and the white friends that I write about that I couldn't keep in the book, where we were set up for miseducation around this thing. So all that to say, I remember as a kid being very race aware. And then there's this whole section of my life of cognitive dissonance around the subject of race, where on the one hand, I'm aware that racial just, racial injustice exists because I lived next door to a Klansman growing up. So I knew that kind of racism exists. And at the same time, I was saying things like, you know, I'm not Black, I'm Jamaican, right? A kind of colorblind rhetoric kind of thing. And that's because it, when I did, when I was more race aware as a young person and tried to name those experiences where I felt or saw or perceived that Black people were treated differently in our society, adult whites would say things like, don't play the race card. Race is a very serious accusation, all that kind of thing. And kind of, you know, give me a slap on the wrist until I finally did, to some extent, accept the Gaslighter's version of the story. And that was just present throughout 
any aspect of your life as far as like it, whether it was a whether it was a home environment, a social environment, a church environment that was just sort of the the ether and like the overall well the, thing about, well the thing about the metro atlanta area is that it is majority black so and my parents are jamaican immigrants and most of their friends were also jamaican immigrants so most of the white people that i encountered were either teachers at school or they were church people because my grandmother went to an assemblies of god church not far from our home and is that where Within within your book, you you were you were the sort of kid that got excited for church. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to ask those big questions. Was that your your primary sort of place of development within either white evangelicalism, as we sort of talk about it now with a bit more hindsight? What was that environment like? You described it as multi ethnic in the book. Yeah. Um, was the leadership that way as well, as far as how? The leadership was not multi-ethnic for most of my time growing up in that church. Actually, I think the entire time I grew up in that church, I think, I don't know, I can't say the entire time. When I was in youth group, we eventually had a black youth pastor. And after I graduated and went off to college in Florida, they hired a black worship leader at the church. But the congregation was majority black and, and, and diverse black and brown. You know, there were there were Nigerian people and Jamaican people and Haitian people. And, you know, this was something that the church was very proud of. We have a multi-ethnic congregation, but the lead pastors were always white. Yeah, pretty much any pastor on staff was usually white. And then you might see black and brown people in uh, administrative supportive roles for the church. What, how is that re reflected within the the worship style or the worship service? Where, since it was a majority black congregation, did, were they represented in the worship style? Uh, for the most part, not really. So, especially for the youth group. So, you know, the, that was mostly the kind of contemporary, you know, Christian styles, white artists, you know, Hillsong worship, that kind of stuff. For the adult services, you know, there would be some like Ron Cannoli, maybe a little Alvin Slaughter, you know, kind of kind of vibe, but also very much, you know, you know, Hillsong was, I mean, shout to the Lord. <laughs> right. know, that was the shout to the Lord era of oh, you know, darling check, you know, <laughs> big uh, old puffy microphone covers. And <laughs> yes, yes. You know, so that was more often than not the vibe. Mm -hmm. So even thinking back on your on your book, I just it, it's hard for me to to think about which which aspect to ask about, because you had this very uh, genuine faith example in your home. And then you also had all of these other things that that you could tell were in tension with that my family actually wasn't religious you know that i knew of like my mother's my mother's faith was so private that i didn't really realize that she was a christian until i was you know out of the house right and my father my, my parents split when i was young I, I mentioned that in the book and my father i'd never known him as a christian so the only person and my siblings were not really church people so the only person in my family that I knew that was really into Christian faith was my grandma. Okay. Did you ever feel like even in, in those young ages when you said you were sort of aware of, of how race was reflected and experienced, did you feel that distinction between how your your grandmother's lived faith and then what you saw in the church? I'm not sure if I'm I'm not sure if I'm really yeah, uh, I mean, so framing that right. I didn't really know what my grandma believed about all of this stuff because, I mean, she went to the tabernacle every every Sunday, right? You know, 
And, you know, my mom, <laughs> I only knew my grandma as a very old woman, right? And so, like, she stayed in her room all the time, you know? <laughs> and, you know, she stayed in her room and watched TBN. And that was kind of the most that she could do, you know, is like, you know, she had severe arthritis. She was always in pain. And so, you know, that was kind of what her faith looked like, aside from the fact that she was a very generous person, you know? So, and it's not, so, and it's not, it's not, it's not like we had theological conversations and stuff. So I just assumed that, you know, like that the faith is this, you know, cause this is, you know, you have a family member that's older than you. Um, and as a child, you trust them. So it's like, you know, and that's what I write about in the first, I think the introduction when I'm writing about like my fear of the rapture and all of the kind of stuff is like, you know, she watched TBN every day and she's saying, amen. So I figure, oh, well, you know. Mama knows the most about Christianity of anyone that I know. So what they're saying must be correct. And did you did you feel like even though the other members of your family weren't as engaged, was that just something that was that was active in you and that you just wanted to pursue that part or I be just, involved? I mean, and I write about this in the book where church was just so different from my home life in the sense that like I had, I felt like I had friends there, you know, mm -hmm. like my mom was really busy and there's a thing in Jamaican culture where, you know, like children are usually, you know, to be seen and not heard is what they say. And so like, you know, it's not like my mom and I were friends, my brother and my older brother and I didn't get along at all growing up. I mean, and that's, that's a severe understatement of that, what that relationship was like. And my older sisters are so much older than me that, you know, but when I went to church and, you know, so everyone seemed either too busy at home or annoyed with me or antagonistic. And at church, it was just different. Everybody loved me. So I loved going to church and, you know, they told me that Jesus loved me and I, I really loved that too. Jesus wanted to be my friend and I, you know, I'd take all the friends that I could get. And so I wanted to be at church whenever the doors are open. Yeah, it can be a really powerful sort of institution in that way, right? With like a built-in friend group. Absolutely. Yeah, you can just, you can move to a new town, find a new church, find a... Yeah, I mean, at its best, like there's there's community there. You know? Right. And then there's a turn in, in, in your book when you start to talk about how you began posting publicly online about the violence and racism Black people face in America. Mm -hmm. And that led to a lot of your friendships ending because... They chose racism over over you. Yeah. I mean, they chose, I guess, I mean, I guess that's the blunt way to say it, right? Is that, you know, they, they have their commitments and their beliefs about America, about racism and all that kind of stuff. And that was more, I don't know. I don't even know how to articulate that really, but I guess that's, I guess that's the rub of it. And a lot of that came through my own political awakening of moving out of the South where I didn't experience that kind of gaslighting, but was still experiencing, you know, racial profiling and all that kind of stuff and able to name it. I learned new language around, about, around my experiences in America. I started studying, you know, uh, systemic racism eventually. And the more that I learned about America's history, the more about racism, the more that I started speaking up and really to convey this to the people that I grew up with, because I gave them the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm -hmm. I believed that if they only knew these things and they would change their mind. What I didn't realize <laughs> was that they did not want to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, let's ground what you just said a little bit in, in sort of just a timeline. Mm -hmm. uh, really started around 2014. Or, yeah. Is that when you really started to 
post about these things publicly, and then one of the common threads of of your book is about how you were processing this personally, you brought it publicly, then that brought up and you talked about it in political terms, and then all of a sudden you had then you had to have additional personal conversations and right. decisions, right? Right. So yeah, so around twenty fourteen around the around the i think it was the second wave of the ferguson riots in the wake of the killing <laughs> yeah be careful with those words the killing of michael brown that i started at least having conversations i i was i didn't necessarily get on a soapbox right away but i at least started having conversations and feeling like you know i was still very much a part of the evangelical faith so you know, I was planning to go to Fuller Seminary, which I did eventually end up going to Fuller Seminary that year. Mm-hmm. And um, I figured that I would use my music and use and use my skills as a preacher and my training as a theologian to to kind of connect the dots between Christian faithfulness and racial justice. And it was very subtle. You know, I didn't I was afraid of being perceived as the angry black man. I didn't necessarily feel confident about, you know, what the solution is necessarily and what can be done. So I, uh, you know, I pretty much tried to just talk to people in my social circle. I talked with people I considered family. I I talk about the, the family I call the stones in the book, mentors, things like that. It wouldn't be until 2015 that I really started posting online. And even then, that was pretty gentle. I'd post a quote from Dr. King. I'd post an article. I'd post a poem, you know, or something like that. But 2016, after two years of trying to go about it that way and facilitate conversations, asking questions, really giving people the benefit of the doubt, I realized basically that these white people are trolling me. They are pretending that they want to have this conversation, but really they want to undermine the conversation altogether. And so I remember the post on Facebook that I wrote. I was doing it the way that I'd always done and tried to be very gentle and uh, almost Socratic in the way that I approached the subject. And then I went back and I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell it like it is now. Uh, (laughs) We do, we Black people do not need any white person to co-sign or affirm what we say about our black experience in America. We don't need anyone to sign off on it or approve of it or agree with it, corroborate it. We know what we're experiencing and we can speak for ourselves. That's basically, that was the idea of what I wrote. And that was the beginning of me saying, you know, to hell with white people's feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you talk about that within the context you mentioned of the of the stones within the book, and like one of the experiences that uh, just to sort of paraphrase that one of one of the things you talk about is like this sort of like let's be chill, let's not talk about politics, let's not is it is a passive passive way to establish like a false peace. You write, and I hope you don't mind that I quoting you a little oh, bit. Yeah. Yeah, um, you, you write that. The piece of the privilege isn't just about ignorance or creating space for leisure. It's also a way of reinforcing their identity as privileged people. Right. And then later on, you say, as they congregate in anti-black fellowship, white people reassure themselves of their existence, which yeah. is 
incisive and very, <laughs> very good. Um, so, yeah. And I'm just, I mean, we, we've all lived, like, we've lived through 2016 through 2020. It was through 2022. Like, like things got, things got rough <laughs> mm-hmm. and people got mm-hmm. more, bl- more blunt online. And it seemed like a lot of the pushback that you got as you became more forthright about your own experience was mm-hmm. within the context of anger. And you you mentioned in the chapter, the right to remain angry about how uh, denial of anger, black, black rage, as you write, has spanned generations. And one more quote, which is that black rage is tr- trustworthy because it carries an analysis of present injustices. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that and how in these, you know, either public or semi-public conversations that happen online that you've you've talked about throughout your book, why black rage is so distinct and yeah, for sure. uh, not because, for white people not to downplay it or try to control it. Well, here's what I'll say is that anger is a is kind of like part of the body's alarm system, right? Like Anger is the body's way of saying something is not right here or I don't I don't like what's going on here. Right. And honestly, that part of our body is quicker than our um, our executive, uh, our executive brain. Right. The, The part that can rationalize things. And that honestly is what whiteness, white supremacy, the white power structure, whatever you want to call it. That is actually where it would like for us to stay because it it wants to rationalize away what our body is telling us, right? And so the white interest in suppressing Black rage is very much a part of this, uh, the larger gaslighting strategy that is trying to tell us, no, don't listen to your body. Don't listen to your intuition, right? Uh, what is happening here is normal or natural or not happening, right? Racism is not happening. And so when I write about Black rage, I'm writing about how our bodies are telling us the truth. <laughs> our bodies are saying, no, what is happening to me is not right. What is happening to us is not right. And we are rightfully, you know, angry about it. And that is that is a good thing because first off, it's it's a healthy response. <laughs> it, it says that we recognize our the true nature of our reality. And there's also a a hint at our vision of tomorrow in our anger. Um, so I mean, what I just said before I get into the vision was that's about the correct analysis, right? Our mm-hmm. body is saying what is happening here is not right. I don't like it. The boundaries are being crossed. And um, that and the flip side of that is the vision of tomorrow, because if you recognize that things ought not to be this way, then you probably have some idea of how things ought to be. And if we can lean in there to where our anger is pointing, then we come out with one of the most important pieces of social progress, which is that we that we have a vision of the world that ought to be so that we can plan on how to achieve it. That's great. I'm. I'm just sort of sitting in that for a minute, sorry. Mm-hmm. While I while I think about where what to ask you next or or where yeah, to lead the fine. conversation, <laughs> I am curious because of the nature of this show, <laughs> of like it, how how these things these these ways in which you you continued to to become more forthright about about your 
your own convictions, about fighting for these things, about organizing for them, how the resistance to that manifested in either evangelical institutions or even just interactions. Because I, I think that's that's one area, and, and this is sort of where my head is right now, is bouncing between institutions and what's done through those mechanisms and what we can do individually. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, my the world that I existed in, the the neighborhood of evangelical uh, evangelicalism. I can't even pronounce the word anymore. <laughs> evangelicalism <laughs> that I grew up in never had much to say about social justice. When I was a preacher, I used to talk about justice even though I didn't really understand I didn't have progressive politics really. I didn't have a radical politic. I didn't really have a progressive point of view. But I would say I was somewhat progressive and I was somewhat open-minded. And the, the reason why I was that way is partly because of my seminary. I mean, not just seminary training, but my theological training. I, I got a bachelor's in theology. I got a master's in theology. I thought that I was going to either be a pastor or, uh, or a theologian, you know, like a, a teach theology, right? Uh, I, on the side of doing music, because I've always... Like been, I've been doing music my whole life. It's been my biggest dream. I've been releasing music since 2009. But somehow, like, in the way that I now am an activist, a writer, and a musician, I thought I would be a pastor, theologian, and musician, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I read Walter Brueggemann, right? The Prophetic Imagination. And that reframed so much about and reading about the prophets, right? Reading Abraham Heschel about the prophet, even though Abraham Heschel was a, was a rabbi, you know, the prophets from the Old Testament really influenced me so much. Um, so I spoke about justice, but I was one of the only people that I knew that spoke about <laughs> justice. And even me speaking about injustice was not like from this robust framework, right? It was just me seeing a connect it's just me looking into the text into the text and seeing that one of the biggest complaints that Yahweh brings to the people of Israel throughout the the Hebrew Bible is that you you have corrupt politicians you don't take care of the poor you trample on the weak and the marginalized like that's that's throughout the Hebrew Bible so when I start speaking up about racial justice that's where I'm pulling from mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think that these people who basically kiss the Bible in the morning <laughs> are going to have one of those like biblical moments, you know, like in the Bible, like King Josiah finds the book of Deuteronomy and the people of Israel have apparently not been aware of this book of law. And Isaiah reads it and he tears his garment because everyone in the Hebrew Bible is super dramatic. And he tears his, <laughs> tears his garment and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe that we've been living outside God's instructions. And he brings his people and the people weep and there's this huge revival and they all are like, we're going to do what Deuteronomy says, right? So that's what I think is going to happen when I tell people guys, like, look, God super hates slavery in Exodus and everyone's going to rip their garments with me and be like, oh my gosh, we have to repent. <laughs> yeah, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. In fact, you know, they call me a racist and a heretic and told me racism is not a priority to God and all of that. And then, you know, I, I had 
friends that went to Hillsong LA and they were trying to really push for the pastor there to just like, just even just pray a prayer for like Philando Castile's family. And it was like pulling teeth. And that never happened, by the way. You know, like it was just so much resistance. When I was graduating from seminary, by that time, I wasn't even sure what I believed about God anymore because, you know, I kept, I kept encountering things like that. Like all these white evangelicals, you know, defending chattel slavery or telling me that the gospel is doesn't include black liberation and all this kind of stuff. Start thinking, man, is racism? I mean, sorry, is Christian Christianity just for white people? And I, but I still like had this little, like quinoa grain of faith. You know, I decided <laughs> to update it. You know, this like quinoa grain of faith. And and I was like, well, I don't know what I believe about all these things, but the message that we should love our neighbor is still compelling to me. And maybe I could be a teaching pastor somewhere and I could at least connect the dots that way subtly on the level of values, like Dr. King says, right? Like, I don't have to get up there and tell you that uh, Black men are five times as likely to be brutalized by by police, which was the popular statistic at the time in 2016. There was a Harvard study in 2020 that said three times more likely. Take your pick. The point is, black black men were more likely to be uh, black people more likely to be brutalized by the police than their white counterparts. I don't have to get on stage on Sunday morning and say that at church, but I could at least connect the dots between the fact that you have a story in Exodus where there are these immigrant people that basically get shoved into a ghetto in the story in, in ancient Egypt. The, the powers that be are afraid of them multiplying so quickly that they organize a propaganda campaign to stigmatize them, erase their history, and implement a system of forced labor upon them. And God looks at that and says, I, I've heard their cry and I've come down to rescue them, right? I can connect those dots for them. And I applied for all these different churches <laughs> and most churches there was one church that wanted to hire me they didn't want to pay me a living wage though that's another story <laughs> the others didn't want to hire me because they knew that i was vocally uh, calling out systemic racism uh, in fact i had at the time been lugging a hundred pound boulder around with me wherever i went in order to convey to people the uh, the weight that systemic racism can place on the black psyche. So, you know, for instance, I used to protect the names of these places, but now I'm, I know I'm never going to get hired in that world and I don't want to, I can't. So like, what's the point? <laughs> so I interviewed at North Point Church in Atlanta. This is the first time I've ever said the, this church's name. I interviewed at North Point Church in Atlanta. At first for like a, they had a teaching platform thing that one of my friends thought it'd be perfect for. And then they had a, a young adult pastor position and a youth pastor position. And I think I interviewed for all of these things, right? They just like, let's just get him in the system somewhere, right? And these people obsessed about the fact that I had this rock. I mean, it just became the vocal, the focal point of so many conversations, especially with one guy in particular. I can't remember his name, but I remember him looking me in the face and saying, well, we just want to keep the main thing, the main thing here. And I'm like, okay. so. What's the main thing? Well, Jesus is the main thing. And then I just like, because I like fucking with people sometimes. Okay, so, <laughs> so help me understand. Are you saying that Jesus has nothing to do with racial justice? <laughs> and just watch him squirm, you know? 
And we had so many conversations about that. And we were like, well, you know, Andre, we all have things that we're passionate about. So now we're abstracting it. We're intellectualizing it. We're making it as though I'm saying, you know, we're, we're, I mean, whales are important. Don't get me wrong. But me saying that, you know, I want to live in a world where my actual body is safe is not the same as saying like save the whales or recycling and all of that kind of stuff. Although those things are important. We should recycle, you know, the climate is, the climate disaster is real. It's coming. Even better, we can dismantle the fossil fuel industry. But I digress. Point is, it's not a hobby, <laughs> right? It's not going to be like it's a hobby, right? And finally, I mean, I went through so many interviews, bro. Finally, <laughs> somebody in that system just looked me in the face and said, look, Andre, we're a large church. And the way that we stay large is by avoiding conversations that would make people uncomfortable. Which, I mean... <sighs> I hate that. I hate that that's like the the reality of it. I also respect that man's candor, you know. Mm. And then they just didn't call me back. I mean, not that person, but the person who should have followed up with me. They just, I, I knew they were just not going to call me back. But that was the kind of thing that was happening amongst the evangelicals. A, a complete refusal to engage, it seemed. I guess in 2020, they realized, okay, we can't, we can't ignore this anymore. So then people like Louis Giglio and others just decided they need to chime in after doing like, no work or at least not enough work to really understand the issues i don't know why they didn't just call someone who knows what they're talking about you know and then model for their people sitting down and listening to people who know better than them but probably because evangelicalism isn't set up that way so yeah they don't they don't they only consult themselves right you know like okay well the pastor has to be everything which isn't even healthy for the pastor right like oh my gosh i can't tell you how many times i'm digressing but i remember when i when i when i get teaching pastor i can't tell you how many times like i would have to like i think of some sub i think of some analogy to the point that i'm trying to make right and it's really in some field that people specialize in right and so you spend the week reading up on that thing so that you can make an analogy and really like you just shouldn't be under that kind of pressure anyway, right? To where it's like, <laughs> now, now I have to become an expert on this thing in a week because I'm the only voice from the platform that people trust. So anyway, I mean, that happened in 2020. But anyway, complete refusal to engage and even outright opposition from the white evangelicals. And it was even the thing that was causing that that literal stumbling block for them, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that you had this this piece of, protest and performance i mean it's an object lesson and evangelicals like they love an object lesson <laughs> but, not when, <laughs> but not when it points to but not when it points to the parts of history that they don't want to remember <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, i mean that's that's to to use our, our mutual friend tory's language that's white homework you know that's that's, yes. that's our work <laughs> yes. Yes. and it and it's a just a rather not you've done uh, so much like i was i was just sort of blown away like at the amount of things that that you dove into within the six years that, that this <laughs> book sort of covers i mean you let's see you start being open about your your concern for racial justice in america that leads to personal personal consequences and lots of relationships which is, leads to the title of your book that these were why friends you couldn't keep because of your work Mm-hmm. And you dive into nonviolent studies and also do a lot of demonstrations, protests. I mean, like it runs the gamut. Like you've, you sp- sprinted through those six years. <laughs> <laughs> like 
Uh, and I mean, that's, that's just, that, that was one thing I was just, that kept coming back to me like this at the end of the book, I was like, Oh wait, this is, this was six years of Andre's life. Like this is so much in six years. And he wrote a book too. Oh yeah. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, forgot, I forgot about that part as you were talking about it. I was like, yeah, actually producing the book was a part of that part, <laughs> part of that journey. And one of the things that, that you talk about in, in part of the book is why amidst all these really difficult things, why hope is important. And that's, that's part of, you know, your ongoing conversations that you have on your podcast and mm -hmm. through your newsletter and it's the hope and the hard pills. So why is, why is hope so important for people involved in activist work or, and for, for black people in general, whether they're black joy too, as well, that that's a sort of a, a subset of that, or even a, an entire other subject. Yes. Yeah, so the reason why hope is so important is because, you know, like I say, hope is the fuel of revolution, right? Without hope, there would be no revolution because, first off, people are more likely to fight battles that they believe that they can win. Now, luckily, <laughs> we don't have to have false hope, right? Because mm -hmm. someone could take what I just said and be like, eh, yeah, I mean, sure, they, they believe that they can win, but, you know, they might be delusional. <laughs> 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 but no, like the thing that really got me so involved in this kind of work was I was convinced from the onset that racism, the fight against racism is a winnable fight. Now, I know that there are a lot of people, people who disagree with me on that. And we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I think that it's a winnable fight. And the reason why I believed that in the beginning was because I I didn't know a whole lot about this, but I knew that I had predecessors that had fought against Jim Crow and we don't live under Jim Crow anymore, right? We still live under racial capitalism and systemic racism, but we don't live under Jim Crow, right? And I said, okay, well, if they did it before, then maybe we can learn from whatever they did and try to, you know, deal with this mass incarceration situation, this police brutality situation. I didn't know that those were the things I knew at the time when I said that on July 6, no, July 20 something, 2016. Then I would learn that like anti-blackness is baked into just about every system in America, but still. And so I decided amongst many other commitments that day that I needed to learn everything that I could about what my predecessors did to fight systemic racism. Now, that took me on a journey that I'm still on, you know, I had to read about nonviolent civil resistance. And I remember to this day the feelings of hope that I felt as I began to study past movements against systemic oppression around the world, not just in America, around the world and throughout history. And what I found were stories that we were never told about ordinary, organized, outraged people fighting the power and winning. And I really felt compelled to become a keeper of those stories and to relay the stories to people and to give people the practical insight that I was learning. And this is all connected to hope because my idea of hope is not about some random, inexplicable, uh, emotional disposition that people have. My perspective on hope is that hope is 
based on memory. It's based on fact. It's based on analogy. We have hope that things can be different because we we have hope that things can be different because history shows us that things can be different. We have hope that there can be victories won because we know of past victories. We don't know what the future will hold. We can't say what the future will be, but we know that we have the power to some degree to shape what the story is. As I often say, history is not a story that's happening to us. It's one that we are writing together. And we know that. We know that we are so powerful, that we are such, we are so important to that story. Because whenever we hear about atrocities throughout history, we always say, well, what were all the other people doing? We know what the active oppressors were doing because, uh, yeah, we're still living with the trauma and the system, the trauma that they wrought and the systems that they built. And we know what the victims were doing because we, we can number them often, right? And there are monuments built to many of them and all that kind of stuff and, and atrocities throughout the world. But what were all the other people doing? The people in the middle, we ask that question because we know we're implying that if the other people, the passive people, the so-called neutral people had done something, then that chapter of history might have looked different. And so to be hopeful is to understand the agency and the power that we have, that we are active agents of history and to take a chance, to take a chance, not to be bystanders or spectators of history and, you know, people, even prognosticators about the future, but to be people who take a chance at writing the future for the chance that uh, we might be able to, to grasp what is possible. And without that, I don't think that people act. Like if you, if you think that systemic racism is unbeatable, then why would you fight against it? I mean, I mean, some people are the type who are like, listen, I'm gonna go down fighting. Listen, I'm not gonna win. I may not win this <laughs> fight. <laughs> I may not win this fight, but I'm gonna throw some punches. I'm gonna land some. There are people <laughs> like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that that's the majority of people. And because, you know, collective action has been so powerful throughout history, it is my belief that if more people will take a chance to write the future together, then we're more likely to win. One of the things early in the book that I remember and stood out to me in it is you, you call out the difference between militants and militarism. And it's something that recurs throughout the book is this, that, that this is this sort of direct work, let alone all this soft work of, of like, if you have personal prejudices of addressing them and educating yourself, but like the systemic things that you, you talk about militants acknowledging that there's a conflict. Could you elaborate on that some more uh, just as far as why, even though these, the way you're pursuing justice is through nonviolent means, it's still a conflict and still. I'm actually looking on, on Google right now to see if I could find this conversation between myself and sociologist Erica because she answered this question much better than I did when I asked about <laughs> the difference between militants and militarism. And I will say that I don't think that everyone agrees on this idea of militants, you know, when it comes to nonviolence. But I do because it seems to be a part of the way that Dr. King really understood it and the way that many other practitioners have throughout history. And so Militarism is kind of like this uh, aggressive imperial violence. You know, I mean, America has a militaristic culture that kind of depends on violence as a tool for everything, right? But militants in nonviolence, to me, 
means that there are some characteristics of, of conflict that are useful to nonviolent practitioners, such as having an analysis, a profound analysis of the conflict situation. That's something that, that's something that militaries do. Before they go into battle, they want to know where the rivers and the mountains are, where the people are located, what their cultures are like, how many troops the other side has, how long it takes them to get from point A to point B, you know, all that kind of stuff. That has been useful. That type of analysis has been useful to nonviolent strategists as well throughout history. Bob Helvey, for instance, who helped strategize in the, Philipp the Philippines, the nonviolent movement in the Philippines in the 80s, is one of those practitioners, the Serbian Revolution. Even the civil rights, even in the civil rights movement, the Birmingham campaign, where they spent four months before going into Birmingham in Georgia planning, and they, they knew how far the 16th Street Baptist Church was from the business district and the business dist district from the jail and all that kind of stuff. So that's one way. Another thing is that it is active and intentional, right? A lot of people, uh, they ascribe to nonviolent principles. They espouse nonviolent sentiment. And they think that that's doing something. It is not doing something that, I mean, it's talking. But actual civil resistance is an active method of struggle. So it's militant in the sense that it is confrontational, right? It's also strategic, right? And this is a big one that, you know, we do not just react, right? And just go out to the streets with our signs and posters and, and chanting and thinking that things are going to change that way. No, we use that analysis to to identify strategic points of intervention, targets, all the kind of stuff, and to determine which courses of action might be most viable and what tactics might be most appropriate to pursue a political objective. So I can pull directly from military strategy, conventional military strategy, to make this point where Clausewitz, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest names in military strategy, talks about how war is an extension of politics. I'm paraphrasing, right? And we hear this paraphr paraphrased by some hip-hop artists where we're like, uh, yeah, um, politics is just war without bloodshed, and war is politics with bloodshed, right? In nonviolence, we talk about nonviolent conflict as war without weapons. And so basically, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about militant nonviolence. It is taking this strategic approach that you that is in some ways represent uh, or bears resemblance to, you know, the way that you would engage in any strategic conflict. But on the nonviolent side, we are committed to not using weapons, and we're con we're committed to not harming the opponent. Yeah, that's this is also v very valuable for for people to understand. Like even if they, um, and it, I've learned a lot about that from from following you and especially through reading this book, just because that's beyond my, you know, my, my current experience. That's mm -hmm. not the type of, the type of experience, the type of education, the type that, that I have from have at this point in my life. One of the, one of the things that is this, is this theme that seems to be, and uh, let me know if I, if I'm reading this right, but within your book, you have this, uh, you, you go through these processes of, of being involved in these movements, publishing, you know, talking about them, learning from them. And a lot of the book is about finding ways to do this sort of long term, not, not burning out, protecting yourself, setting those boundaries. Right. Well, yeah, you know, a huge part of this. So what I'm arguing for right in the book is strategic, nonviolent civil resistance campaigns. Right. 
I, that that is my that is my voice in this conversation about racial justice. We cannot bypass the need for this, or at least a part of my voice, right? Like I'm I'm tired, so I'm trying to do other things too. But <laughs> but, but through the book, that is a huge that's that's a huge reason why I wrote this book, right? And the truth is that a lot of people have this misconception that they're going to dismantle the white power structure in a summer. <laughs> we saw this in 2020, you know? Yeah, we saw this in 2020 where, you know, people got very passionate about racial justice in May. And by August, support for the Black Lives Matter movement was in significant decline, right? But when you look at the campaigns of the civil rights movement, for instance, the Montgomery bus boycott, 13 months. Um, when you look at Gandhi's organizing in India against British rule. Oh man, I'm messing that. I, I can't remember the exact stat. It's years. I'm, that, that's the most accurate I can get right now is it's years. I used to have that off the top of my head. The Serbian revolution, 10 years. You know, so there is this sustained pressure that is put on the system through a diversity of tactics and a critical mass of people, which is not as many people as people think. Critical mass is around three and a half percent of the population. That's critical mass. Mm. <laughs> Engaged mm -hmm. in long-term nonviolent, active nonviolent struggle. And so that's why there is this emphasis on longevity because we have to go after anti-blackness like you're, like you're going after, like a cancer treatment. Like you really have to want to be well. Right. And if you really want to be well, you want to heal, you got to go after it. None of this like flash in the pan, march for a few weeks because there was another death, a viral death in the news cycle. We got to go after it when there is no hashtag. And it doesn't necessarily always mean that we're in the streets. Because some of the direct interventions that we need, some of the direct action that we need is actually building alternative institutions, healing from the effects of racial violence, decolonizing our own thought. I mean, there, there's so many different ways, but it does need to be sustained. And on that note, when I, I think I've been thinking a lot about the, the way we're all dependent upon these, like, dependent upon things like social media to be the thing that both informs us and connects us. And it, it has a lot of dynamics to it, but it, it was a lot of it was accelerated in 2020 because of the pandemic. We became even more dependent on them. Um, and I know this isn't, this isn't the, the entirety of anything, but I'm just thinking of this particular aspect of how, when it, when it comes to longevity of, I guess, attention, uh, of of maintaining the conversation main, and even beyond conversation other types of other types of work um i think people have become more cognizant of people having clear individual boundaries around like okay i'm not going to i'm not going to engage this on social media or i will and i'm going to engage it in this way as a person who's been in this space and doing a lot of doing a lot of that work inclusive of those tools do you have any preferred way of like what 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 are some practices that that 
that you find valuable that others can learn from so that they don't really with people online yeah or, or you know as far as like like a so that someone whether they use a term like ally or whatever doesn't impinge on a black person or a non-black person of color and recognize be able to recognize that like we don't have to comment on everything there's plenty of there's you know the story that's in the news cycle right now it doesn't need a white person's opinion like right you know i i have a lot of thoughts about this but the big thing is that like i have kind of reached a point where i want i want for white people to stop thinking about allyship altogether because it implies that this is not their problem mm-hmm. that you are helping you're helping black people people of color indigenous people i mean yes if white people would stop believing that they are white and refuse to participate in this white supremacist society that would be beneficial to all of us so in a way you can think of it as helping but i am wondering what it will take for white people to be mortified at what their predecessors have done to them right because it's like Mandela said when he was in Robben Island prison. Mandela said that he realized that his oppressors were oppressed in a way, right? And I think that I saw this in the things that I write about in my book is that the white people that I write about in my book had been rehearsed in anti-blackness for so long without even knowing it that empathy for them was not a reflex. With black people. I have to say, just that one example, I think that that should keep white people up at night because that is a form of dehumanization that white people are experiencing. The inability to see people who are not white like them as equal human beings. The internalized superiority, always assuming that you know better and that your that your ability to reason and rationalize is just as valid as a person's lived experience. I've had white people try to explain to explain racism away from situations that I that only I was there and present in, right? Mm. I think that I think that white people somehow, I don't know how it happens. It's not my work to figure out. But one way or another, I think that white people have to understand that they too have a colonized mind and that that fact, I, I wish that that would motivate white people because the thing that makes me stay up to 2 a.m. on a Friday night and look for new tactics to fight racism is that I understand that I am a target of this system, right? So it is a personal problem. And I see that personal problem as connected to systemic forces. But I don't think that white people, I don't think that white people in general have that same sense that this is a personal problem for them. And that unless they actively confront it, they'll never be free from it. Mm-hmm. A, couple of year, a couple of years ago, I listened to Stand From the Beginning uh, by uh, Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was enlightening to understand just how racist and white supremacist 
American Christianity is like, uh, and, and, uh, just to, to acknowledge that from like it, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's not fun to learn and it's not by no means an equivalent experience of living under racism, but it is to your point of, to, uh, of acknowledging the degree to which in order to benefit from whiteness, white people have to, or, or like your, the people, your, your ancestors gave something up in order to claim that. Um, and that's not, that's beyond the scope of your, your work and beyond the scope of your, um, but, uh, just to vocalize that in, in a, in a brief little bit there, but what I, what I, I think every, I think your book is so instructive for people, for your primary audience, audience, as well as people like me who are, who can learn from what, what you've experienced and the degree to which you've shared. I, I, I'm, I'm very thankful that, that you published this book and that as a writer, like I'm just the, the amount of <laughs> disclosure that you're doing. I, I, I want, just want to acknowledge that. I mean, like the, you're very vulnerable in this and, uh, and the reader benefits. So it was not easy to, to write. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that it does the work that it needs to do, you know, mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I read some books about nonviolent struggle and opened my eyes to what is possible. They gave me information that I didn't have and I felt empowered. And I took that and I ran with it. And I'm, I'm just hoping that this book does the same for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. One thing I like to say is the greatest thing a gift, the greatest gift a book can do is lead you to other books. <laughs> mm, yes, and like, yes. and uh, this is a this is a book I will recommend. There are books that you've mentioned that are now on my reading list <laughs> uh, that you mentioned in the book, which I love. It's my favorite thing as a reader. Just in 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 closing, as far as just with in keeping with you offering these both the, this hope and these hard pills. What are you? How, how are you framing your hope right now? And um... Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, this is a tough moment in history we're living in. Mm-hmm. You know, man, between the climate crisis and the rise of fascism, and it's hard to be hopeful right now. But I remain, I remain committed and focused on the fact that there is a chance for us to beat these things there is a chance that we can pressure you know our our governments and fossil fuel you know industry to do differently there is a chance that we can stop the rise of more authoritarian powers that are that are are being driven by you know racist rhetoric and racist ideologies and all that kind of stuff there there is a chance for all of that and i don't know the details of every single solution i wish that i did oh my gosh that would have been been the book that i'd written Mm -hmm. but i do know that nonviolent civil resistance has historically been a part of efforts to confront problems like these to confront corporations that exploit and exploit and exploit to confront governments that oppress and oppress and oppress throughout history. <laughs> as far back as ancient Egypt, and we're not just talking about the I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm talking about like one of the first instances of 
nonviolent civil resistance that we have recorded in history comes from like 1175 BC, I believe it is, in ancient Egypt, where a bunch of Egyptian workers went on strike. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's an amazing piece of history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do have power. My hope is that we will learn this and learn it quickly and learn how to use it. Mm-hmm. I also remain hopeful because I understand that sometimes things get worse and that is the thing that awakens us as a people. And so I'm also, I also have, I also have hope in the fact that even if we don't prevent the next, you know, authoritarian power that wants to take the presidency in America, probably Donald Trump again, that it won't be too late if it happens. There's still hope that we can win mm. through nonviolent civil resistance. And that's where hope is for me. What's keeping me going <laughs> is also understanding that Black people, especially, have always found ways to live full lives regardless of our material conditions. We have created music and art and dramas and forms of dance and literature and all that kind of stuff with our backs against the wall. And so things do not have to be perfect in order for us to have joy. And so I am continuing to pursue that joy by continuing to make music and exercise and connect with friends and watch really trashy reality TV <laughs> or very wholesome you know reality TV like Is It Cake? I'm obsessed with that show. <laughs> the second season of Is It Cake cannot come out soon enough. <laughs> because I mean now I literally am like I it's making me doubt the nature of my reality. Like somebody <laughs> stabbed me on the street. I'd be it's like God damn it, right? But then if they were like, I'm not sure if you were cake, I'd be like, oh, okay, I understand. It's, it's this generation's matrix. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. It's fine. You're not but, in the matrix. You might be cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, like, I mean, there are, are ways, you know, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about like my, my own love life and like, you know, because I used to, I used to hide behind like being too revolutionary and too woke to fall in love because what we call romance is, was invented by diamond companies in the mid 20th century, you know, and really breaking free from all of that kind of stuff and remembering that all of this work is so that we can enjoy our lives more. And no matter what happens, we at least have to try to enjoy the life that we have. That's, that's wonderful. Um, and You've written a wonderful book, Andre. I loved talking with you about it a little bit, just getting even a bit of your story. Where can people find the book? Where can they find your other work online? Your yeah. music, anything else we didn't, we, we, we stayed focused on the book, but you're also a musician. Anything you want to mention here at the end, please do so. Well, you know, I am adamant about, you know, I am an artist and I... I think that I'm I I really have been struggling with you know this kind of I hear that the, I hear that it comes from capitalism like specialization right that 
you know, people like to think of others as one thing, right? But my book, you know, I talk about, you know, my music. It's based on my music. I include the lyrics from my music in it, you know, because I think it's very important for people to understand that I was going about my business, writing love songs, and, you know, then the Black Lives Matter movement gave my art a, a new sense of purpose, actually a sense of purpose that it didn't have before then. And so, you know, when people want to keep in touch and get to know my work, you know, the things that I do, they can find me at andrehenry.co. Um, I have a mailing list there where I still send out practical insight about social progress and all of that. I'm really, I'm really thinking more about racial healing these days because I've got so much trauma that I'm trying to work through and trying to share that there. But I mean, anything that I'm doing, podcast episodes, articles, music, you know, anything will go out on that mailing list. Great. Andre, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 